This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And of course, there is only one story today and uh, we're going to focus on the response from all three levels of government. How are they doing? How is the landscape changing when we have the prime minister, the premier, and the mayor dominating our screens while so many of us are idle at home? And the opposition is almost invisible. And speaking of the opposition, the conservative leadership race has been put on hold. What will that mean? Of course, we want to hear from you. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor, current CEO of Variety Village and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hello there. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. Karen? Hi, how are you doing? Fine, how are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. And Karen, let's start with you, uh, because uh, you are also uh, the CEO of a facility. Will the measures that were just unveiled by the Trudeau government in terms of wage subsidy and all of that, will that help you out? It definitely will help us out because uh, although we're not considered a small business, we are a charity and a charitable sector benefits from the wage subsidy. So we are, as the details uh, unfold, then we're, we're going to take a look at it and see uh, what it means for us. Um, personally, the fact that, um, I mean, there's a couple things that I think are good for our organization. One is that they, that they are extending it to uh, the middle of April, um, as opposed to, you know, the end of May, I think is helpful for us to at least plan and, and retain staff. Um, also, I understand the school year might be um, not open until May or not resume until May, but just the fact that they're even talking about resuming the school year is, uh, is good news for, you know, a new normal that we're going to have to eventually adjust to uh, because the, the, that this permanent state of shutdown is it, it, it creates a, um, an immense amount of unease within you know our sector, within the community, and within uh, you know at large. Like how long can this go on for? And it you know again the strategy that the government has employed is that everybody needs to stay home until we can find out who has who is potentially um, in, you know at risk of infecting others, um, but. You know, at, at some point, we, we need to figure out a, another way to identify those that are at risk, um, as opposed to keeping everybody at home. Uh, John, how are you making out, and how do you think uh, the, the government is doing with these measures and with their communication? Well, you know, week three of working from home and uh, certainly getting accustomed to it. I um, I think like a lot of the folks who uh, were used to going to their offices and dealing with with issues um, from their offices, you know, they weren't unsure how, how it was going to be for working from home, but I think it's sort of selling, selling in um, and a lot of people are getting used to, uh, used to that. So, you know, I think from that perspective, um, 
that's a positive. But from a government's perspective, I think, you know, the government's continue at all levels to do a, a really good job and, 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 you know, getting the message out, uh, you know, and that's that fine balance that we've talked about before, Libby, which is to, which is to say that, you know, any leader of any sort of, uh, of any government, be it federal, municipal, or provincial, needs to ensure that, that, you know, there's not a, uh, they don't incite a crisis or, or a mass, you know, um, uh, issue with with their uh, with their respective constituents, um, yet still maintaining uh, transparency and 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 the truth about what the issue is and how dire it is. So there is that fine balance, and I think we've seen you know the prime minister do that. Certainly, our premier uh, Doug Ford has been doing that, and, and John Tory, our mayor, um, has uh, has been doing that. Uh, and they're and they're also, I think, quite importantly, not tripping over each other. Uh, there seems to be a good coordination of communication at all three levels, so that you're not sort of hearing or you know, one's pointing the finger at the other. They're all working together. They're all sort of seeming to be to be talking about the same thing, but also sticking within their lane of jurisdiction. And we're seeing that in the polls. In fact, you know, we're seeing that that certainly week by week the uh, the polls increase. Uh, certainly at the provincial level, uh, the premier's gone. You know, into the seventy range from from the high sixties, uh, and at the federal range, we're seeing you know the prime minister still below the provincial uh, numbers, but still you know increasing his his population. I think he did suffer a bit of a hit uh, last week or the week before with uh, with respect to that that ill-advised uh, clause within that bill that was going to give him extra powers. But I think he's rebounded and, and is focusing back on what he needs to. So I think overall, the leaders have been doing pretty good. Charles. Uh, are you asking how I'm doing? I'm asking how you're doing and, and how, how the politicians are doing. Well, I, I've given up on all forms of personal hygiene, and uh, my <laughs> wife and children aren't speaking to me at the moment, let alone uh, spending time with me. So I think it's going great. Um, no, everything is fine on the home front. I'm happy to report. Um, you know, I think the elephant in the room at the moment has a lot to do. And that is that in Canada so far, we have had less than 100 deaths, whereas in the United States, they've had um, more than 3,300 deaths. And so when you sort of equalize for population, given that Canada is, uh, or rather the U.S. is eight or nine times larger than Canada in terms of population, that suggests that they're, they're having a much, much harder time of it. And that suggests one of two possibilities. Either um, social distancing has taken hold in Canada to a far greater extent, and that we may, may have uh, sidestepped the brunt of this thing. Um, or that we're simply behind where major U.S. jurisdictions are or sub-jurisdictions are. Uh, in terms of how our politicians are doing, they're doing fine. I, I mean, uh, I think uh, the Prime Minister, the Premier, the Mayor of Toronto have been out there on a daily basis communicating, empathizing. Um, I will say I think Premier Ford has been particularly strong. Um, you know, his press call, he, he's re- he, he clearly... Um, is engaged and feeling it and feels the sense of responsibility. I mean, Justin Trudeau has been at this for more than four years, whereas um, Premier Ford has really never faced anything quite like this. So it's it's something to watch, And but so far, so good. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's it. I see the uh, spirit of uh, nonpartisan cooperation, certainly among the panel. Um, is there any... Uh, 
danger in them being overexposed? I mean, as as um, media, we have to follow all of it, and it's it's practically the whole day. I mean, and they they space each other out. It's uh, Trudeau at eleven fifteen, and Doug Ford at one, and then the doctors at the and and John Tory at three or whatever, and the doctors at three forty five. It's just hours and hours. Uh, is that a good thing? <laughs> Sorry, or a bad thing? Are we going to be sick of seeing them, or um, does this sort well, of just crowd yeah, I mean, out anyone else? No, I mean, I, I think that in terms of what uh, John and Charles were saying, you know, they've done a good job of, you know, creating a sense of, of awareness and urgency in the public that this is an, an issue that needs to be paid attention to. Uh, there's no question about that. But as Charles mentioned, um, you know, are, have we, you know, are, are we are we going to be able to declare that we've um, successfully flattened the curve to the point where we can resume some type of activity within the economy, or is it a tsunami that's waiting to wash over us? And soon that question is going to be posed to the politicians, you know, when are we out of the woods here? And and how are we going to know? And, you know, we, again, the, the strategy is that everybody needs to think, you know, in eight days, we've gone from wash your hands to don't leave your home. And so how do we then create that sense of, okay, now we know we're coming out of this um, either intact or in some way, shape, or form, so that we can then resume some level, as they say, of of, of, of economic activity and social engagement, and because we're social beings, and it, it, you know, over time, you know, everyone is understanding why social distancing is important. We're doing our part. We're buying in. We believe it. We're doing it. But but help us with the light at the end of the tunnel. What does that look like? And how will we know? How will we know we're in trouble? How will we know we're doing well? And what is what is our testing strategy to help us identify our at risk group? And well, the, you know, the, and some more of that communication I think will be will be important over the next few weeks beyond okay, now we've closed everything down, we need you to stay home. The next part of the communication is here's what the new normal looks like. I mean, we we are behind. One of the reasons we have a lower number of cases is because we are behind on the testing still, behind other provinces, and, and also behind the United States, surprisingly enough. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, you know, um, uh, we are catching up, apparently, but we do not have a true picture of how widespread this is. No, um, you know what, Libby, we don't. And and I'll and I just to your earlier question regarding the exposure of our leaders, and then I'll get into the testing side of things. But you know that's an interesting that's an interesting question from a political perspective, which is to say, when you're in a time of crisis uh, and your politicians, you're, there's an expectation to have your politicians out and and talking. At which point, you know, does it become overexposure? Um, I think that the answer to that is it, it doesn't until. The, the leaders are out there saying things for the sake of just getting out there. Like, I think there's an expectation for leaders to get out on a daily basis. And once you've built a routine, as we've seen all of them do now, where they're getting out on a daily basis, you know, for them not now to get out on a daily basis is going to be a, a question to say, well, what, what the, the news will be, why aren't they getting out on a daily basis? Yeah. What's going on? So I think the key thing is um, to get out there on a daily basis, to say what you're saying, you know, and, and if there's any new information, what, what's happening by way of companies that are, are doing some good things, you know, telling what's happening and then get off the stage and not make it into a long, overdrawn issue. And I think the, the key thing is to always answer the questions as long as you can, because the questions of the reporters are usually really, you know, reflective of what, you know, the citizens and, and, and constituents are talking about. So that's an important one. So that, that would be key. But with respect to um, the tests, you're, you're right. 
Ontario now, I think, has 200,000, I think, give or take uh, 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 folks that are being tested, um, which is high, but not high enough. And I think they're just catching up now and they're getting into a, a good rhythm of that. And that's why I think you're going to start seeing the numbers as you did yesterday peak at, at 300 or so um, um, tested cases. Uh, but I think what's still relatively positive if there is anything positive in this, is that 3% of those um, uh, are coming back positive and 93% of them are coming back negative. Uh, 3% is still high, obviously, but still, when you look at that ratio, um, but you, 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 that's why I think that you're seeing the Premier making the announcements and being as strict as he has by shutting down parks and getting aggravated by seeing people milling about over the past weekend because he knows that the more tests that are going to be done, the higher the number of folks that are going to be testing positive and it's going to increase and the peak is still not hasn't peaked yet so he still has to maintain that level of force forcefulness to say stay home stay isolated uh and get away from the parks uh yeah and i mean it's interesting at the end of the day uh we don't know who is at risk of very severe disease and who isn't you know we know that older people are perhaps more at risk they are more at risk i've heard smokers uh i've heard obesity. Uh, but we really don't know. And so, you know, it's, um, it reminds me of, you know, a certain approach with certain kinds of, of cancers where they don't know which ones you can live with till you're 85 and which ones will turn into something deadly. And that's why with certain types of things, they treat all of it. I mean, it's kind of what our medical system does. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and um, yeah. and I, I'd also mention that the uh, um, COVID-19, in terms of its infection rate, seems to be uh, befalling men more than women. Yep. Um, I, I would just, I'm always loath to correct my friend John, but um, the number of tests that have been conducted in Ontario as of yesterday is less than 50,000. And you compare that with Alberta, which has done 44,000 tests despite the fact that it has a much smaller population. I think a lot of that has to do with geography. And in terms of, you know, was anyone at fault here? Did someone drop the ball? I think we can come back to that at some point in the future when when the crisis is behind us. Um, The total number of tests across Canada um, is just above uh, 220,000, which, again, on a per capita basis, is much higher than what the U.S. has managed to accomplish to date. I mean, Donald Trump is obviously... uh, made much of having done a million tests and more tests than ever and, you know, it's perfect and all those good things. Um, but um, uh, Canada is actually doing reasonably well on the testing front. Well, yeah, it's just the question is, uh, you know, w- when you hear about people waiting for test results, do does the daily count show how many, where, where we were five days ago or four days ago or three days ago? I mean, when do we even get to the point where it's kind of up well, to date. You know, Libby, this goes exactly to Karen's point, which is, you know, when 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 is this all over, right? <laughs> when do we get to say, okay, everyone go back to ball games and uh, playing in the park and play dates and, and all those things? And the truth is, we don't know. Um, and and that's, that's frustrating and it's a little bit scary. But, um, you know, I do, I do know that we have to be guided by the science. And one of the major developments over the last seven days was Donald Trump going from business as usual as of Easter, right, which would have been, I think most people agree, catastrophic, um, to um, now realizing that uh, he had to extend 
uh, the provisions that are currently in place in the U.S. till at least the end of April. And everyone, I think, intuitively knows that it will slip into May. In terms of, you know, exposure of leaders, um, it, what, what they're doing now is absolutely essential. The real test will be a week, two weeks, three weeks from now when, when we reach the peak of, of the pandemic because th- there's just no nice way to say it. A lot of people are going to die. Um, it could very well be a staggering number in the United States. In fact, uh, Dr. Deborah Hicks, who's on um, the White House task force dealing with the coronavirus, uh, said that if they get everything perfect and do everything right, they can limit the number of deaths in the United States to 100,000 to 200,000. Yeah, I mean, and, that's and, a sobering... And, and that's, that's, that's really, that really puts things in perspective in terms, of, uh, in terms of what we can expect. And we've already, we're already seeing hospitals in places like New York and Boston and Detroit and New Orleans that are, that are being pushed to the breaking point. And, you know, this, this, is not, this, is, this is a disease that does not respect county lines or, you know, political uh, demographics. I mean, it will... Um, it, 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 its tendency, its transmissibility is extremely high. There is, there's actually a body of thought that suggests that the rate of infection is much, much higher than anyone realizes. Um, and that it's actually very, very small people who present symptoms and an even smaller percentage that end up hospitalized and in the ICU. Um, but that it has unknowingly infected so many people. Again, this is stuff we're going to have to figure out when when the worst is behind us. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to give the numbers out again first. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. If you would like to weigh in on how our politicians are doing with all of this, do you believe them? Do you uh, watch them every day or, or hear them every day? Uh, on the radio, do you or are you sick of them? Uh, let us know. And uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the conservative leadership race. It was last week. It was announced that it was put off, and and um, the front runner, Peter McKay, looked awfully peaked, and he, you know, he was saying. No. And, and of course, um, things might change afterwards. Uh, so, John Capobianco, what did you make of his reaction and, and uh, what do you think this means? Well, I think, I think the party made the right decision ultimately. And I think they were obviously looking at uh, the situation, as every organization has been. And, and uh, you know, they, they obviously had put in place uh, certain rules and guidelines as the COVID-19 issue was evolving uh, and ad- adapted certain rules for the leadership race where they, you know, it's, would have town hall or electronic town hall meetings and not in-person meetings. They had canceled uh, debates or they made them into, you know, so they, t- they try to make, they try to put guidelines in there as the leadership race was still continuing. And a lot of the other issues were, you know, candidates were doing their own um, membership sales by phone and, and all that kind of stuff. So they were trying to do that. But obviously the issue wasn't getting resolved with COVID and, and they were seeing that it was getting more dire and they had to make the decision as they did to cancel it. I thought, to be honest, that, uh, you know, I, I get Peter's uh, issue, which is, you know, look, we have a leadership, we have an interim leader, you know, time for us to get as a party to pick a, a full-time leader in there who's in there and has the um, the trust and the support of the whole party. Uh, and also, if there's any issues that need to be happening at, uh, at Parliament, 
you know, you've got a leader that can do it. I think what what happened uh, from that thinking to to ultimately why he was getting so um, um, vilified in the media, or social media on it, is that uh, Sheer had done a pretty good job over the course of the last couple of months, and in fact, last couple of weeks. Uh, most importantly, the last week when he actually was the one was the one that forced the prime minister and the Liberal government to back down on on those uh, overreach powers that he had tried to put into the into the bill. And so I think the party was actually saying, well, look at our, our interim leader is not doing a bad job, you know. So I think we. He could stay on and, and do this for the next number of months. Let's cancel this. And I think the party made the right decision. I think Peter was a bit late coming to the party on that and uh, obviously got criticized for it. And, um, you know, I think he's uh, now back on track to try to do what he can to, to try to resolve this issue as much as he can through his party, through his supporters. Uh, Charles, would you know, I mean, uh, are they likely to reopen it? I mean, I was surprised the uh, last, I can't remember when it was. I talked to Pierre Polyevre, who is usually extremely combative, and he kind of softened his tone and came across as being very smart. He had decided not to run. I'm wondering, if, if you know, this is going to change a lot of things. Do you think that there will be uh, candidates who elected not to run who who might change their mind if the whole thing is reopened, Charles? Well, I hope that list starts with Andrew Scheer, personally. But um, uh, <laughs> as a well, liberal, you hope that. Critic, <laughs> so um, yeah, I think I think it is possible. You, you've seen some vague indication of, of fostering on the part of others. Um, I won't mention mention any names except to say that um, I, I think there's a bit of a view that the, the coronation of Peter McKay may have been um, uh, a bit premature, but that there isn't anyone else in the race who uh, is really in a position to challenge him. So that's generally the kind of dynamic that will cause others to think, hmm, you know, Maybe just maybe uh, there, there's a place for me in this race, and you know, and running running for leadership of a party is, is very difficult. I mean, it, there there are advantages from doing it from a seat in the House of Commons or you know elected office as opposed to coming in and saying, "Hey, my first job in politics should be as Prime Minister of Canada or as leader of the opposition." Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think McKay really came off as quite churlish. And uh, there was some suggestion on social media that when he was protesting about um, the race being shut down, uh, he was actually in Mexico when he was doing that. So that's not terribly helpful. (laughs) Oh, Karen, what's your view of this? Oh, yeah. To be honest with you, I I think it was a good thing that the whole thing was postponed because, quite frankly, I hadn't been following any of it. And I don't think many people have been. I mean, obviously, there was a reaction to Peter McKay's um, position on the matter, but I mean, I, I, I can't even believe that the, the, the Conservatives would want to hold the race during this time because no one's listening to the issues. There's only one issue. And there's no there's no opposition position on the issue other than, to to, to John's point, what uh, the effectiveness of Andrew Scheer right now uh, in terms of just holding Liberal to account on the bill that they were passing. But, um, you know, it's certainly when the dust settles on this, that there could be um, a new opportunity for new people to run. And and I, and I think that that wouldn't be a terrible thing, because uh, to Charles's point, I think the coronation of Peter McKay may have been premature. And um, if this provides the Conservative Party an opportunity to, to think about renewal in a new way, I think that's only beneficial for the party. John, uh, do you know, um, it, has it been worked out if the race just resumes uh, from where it was, or, or will it be reopened 
Do you have any idea? Well, no, and I think that the, the party itself is in the, sort of the, the, the LEOC, which is what they call the Leadership uh, Election Organizing Committee, uh, has yet to decide. I think what they've, de- what they've decided definitively was that they're going to put everything on hold and they're going to come back May 1st and revisit the issue based on where we are with, uh, with COVID-19. Have we flattened the curve? Are things somewhat back to normal? Can we start? Uh, a phased approach of the leadership, which means to say that, you know, we can we can maybe do a couple of debates or, or whatever, or are they just going to say, look, we can't do anything now until at least the fall um, and uh, and then re- reassess and, and then allow people to come back in if they want to come back in. Um, that'll be an interesting, it'll be interesting to see whether that'll be the case or not, because I think what will happen is that you've seen a couple of really good people like Candace Bergen uh, and Pierre Polgav and others uh, in the House over the last little while when the House was in session for some of these debates really take on uh, some powerful and some uh, and some really good um, um, positions publicly there that, that might you know enlist people to say, hey, you know, you guys might, might, might want to re- reconsider coming back into this race. And whether or not that's fair or not or whatever, I think Leox is going to determine it. But for now, it's just on hold until May 1st, and then they're going to come back with some more thinking on it. Okay. And Libby, I would just I would just add. I mean, it's it's a relatively straightforward thing to arrange for an online vote, and that's really not yes. the problem for the conservatives. The problem for the conservatives is that even when we're past the peak of COVID and when we're sort of into the new normal, whatever that looks like, it comes with a host of enormous issues that that don't necessarily favor the conservatives, such as the capacity of our healthcare system. Um, you know, whether the impacts on our economy are strictly cyclical, like they'll go away with economic growth, or whether it's structural, right? The sheer amount of spending that's taken place. What does this mean for federal-provincial relations, given everything that's going on in terms of combating the virus? What's it mean for globalization versus protectionism? I mean, one of the things we've discovered is that, you know, we are heavily reliant on the United States in terms of essential foodstuffs. And, um, you know, if, if we do fi- ever find ourselves in a situation where that border closes, we've got serious problems. So do we need to take more of a, you know, small P protectionist view and start giving a lot of thought to how do we how do we provide for our own needs? And, and these are really fundamental issues and not terribly good ones for the conservatives. Uh, Karen, I'm going to give you the last 20 seconds. Oh, thank you, Libby. No, I mean, I think that... Um I think Charles is, is, is very right to say that there are the, the issues that emerge out of this crisis um, are significant for the country, and uh, I think it's fair to say that nobody has any uh, clear sense of how they're all going to get resolved because I don't even think we have a clear sense of what they all are. And so, you know, back to whether it makes sense for the conservatives to put their leadership on hold, I think it does because the issues that they're going to have to be facing are much different than the issues that they were facing even a month ago. Okay, with that, thank you so much to our crack strategy panel. And I look forward to talking to you all again next week, if not sooner. Thank you, Charles Bird, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.
Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.